0: Growing up in South Carolina, people from time to time took a snooze on Sunday during the sermon. I don't think that ever happens here, but if you did sleep through the sermon and someone asked you after church what the sermon was about, there was a stock answer that you used. It was what the preacher preached about. He preached about sin. What about sin? How he's against it, That was often a fib, but today it's not. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when our Lord was crucified? Are you there right now in your heart and mind? Do you understand why Jesus died? So often we ponder the cross knowing that it's supposed to affect us and move us, but that doesn't always happen. And if it does, we don't always get moved in the right way. Sometimes we're more appalled than awestruck. We struggle with the gravitas of the cross, and with confusion and sometimes even with suspicion, we wonder why Jesus was there in that place on this day 2,000 years ago, and so we need to reflect on the meaning of the cross. No better time than Good Friday, eh? We need to enter this unpleasant place. We need to sit in it for a bit a place where we have to face things about ourselves that we'd prefer to omit. We need to lift up the rug and come to terms with all the stuff we've swept under it. According to God, there are things we need to acknowledge if we want to rejoice at Easter. The good news is not good apart from the bad. A seed must fall dead to the ground before new life blossoms. The resurrection comes after the cross. After the cross, which was a death that Jesus did not deserve, a death that was a travesty of justice, a death that other people deserved, people in this room, the person on this stage. We don't want to miss the fact today that in this particular instance of death on a Friday afternoon, God was reconciling the world to himself. And as we meditate on Good Friday and on the cross, I want to touch upon just two things today the cross as a sign of the seriousness of sin, and the cross as a sign of the seriousness of God's love. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Let's go there. The cross, friends, was required because sin is serious. 1 Timothy 1, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Romans 3 tells us the same thing. No one is righteous. No one understands. All have turned away from God. Even more strongly in Isaiah, for our iniquities, Christ was afflicted. Now, sinners is not perhaps the go-to categorization that we use in our self-description. We don't make our introductions by saying, hello, I'm Alistair, my favorite color is burnt orange with a little bit of black, and I'm a sinner. Truth be told, sin is increasingly an alienized, an alien concept in our culture. But more than this, and more disturbing, Sin, sinfulness, is a personal classification that tends to get minimized in a lot of churches these days, churches which have devolved to preach that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. Notwithstanding all that, sinners is, my sinful brothers and sisters, one of the ways that God identifies us. And seeing ourselves as sinners is, in part, an act of telling the truth about ourselves. If that causes offense, better that an offense be called caused than truth be concealed. Now, before probing into the cross and how the cross exposes the ugliness of sin in our lives and in humanity, let me talk briefly about sin. I've used that word seven times thus far. More than many churches use it in a year. Some of you might be confused or curious about what I mean by it, and there is a lot of ignorance and misunderstanding about what sinfulness means if it's defined by the Bible. All too often, sinfulness is reduced down to moralism. It's equated with breaking the rules. You sinner, you broke the rules. Now, sin is no less than that, but it is much more than that. In the Bible, sinfulness is something that is expansive and tragic. It refers to deep brokenness in our wills, in our desires, in our knowledge. And sinfulness, according to the Bible, at the foundation is an internal problem. Our greatest weakness, our greatest enemy is within. At the center of sinfulness, both historically and personally, is the rejection of God by the human heart. Our hearts, as as a default, seem to crave for autonomy, even if it'll ruin us. Because of sin, we wanna put ourselves in God's throne. We wanna be the boss. And so it's no shock that sin separates us from God. It disconnects us from the one ultimate true source of life, of flourishing, of love, of holiness. Biblically speaking, sinfulness means that we deserve to be totaled. There's nothing worth salvaging. The reverberations of sinfulness are all over the place. Sinfulness, for example, is what makes us think that a codependent relationship will satisfy our love for hunger, or our hunger for love and significance, when in fact codependence does the opposite. It destroys relationships. Sinfulness undermines appropriate gratitude. It leads people in the wealthiest culture to ever occupy this planet, people like you and me, to worry, to fret about our material well-being in a manner which is embarrassingly disproportionate to what we actually have and what we're likely to have. Sin lets fear and anxiety into our hearts and pushes out thanksgiving and joy. Sinfulness cajoles us to subject our principles to our propensities instead of the other way around. It causes us to take our urges and our impulses as humans more seriously than God's word. And so it leads us to rationalize and to justify, to be self-deceptive in a self-preoccupied way in ways that are often harmful, as you know. Sin is what beguiles us to think that at foundation we're basically sexual beings. That sexuality is our truest self. Sin is what makes Freud more persuasive than Jesus Christ. You got that? Sin is what makes it so hard for us to ask for forgiveness. Because it allures us to conclude that our perspective on things is more truthful than it often actually is. And in Vancouver, especially, sinfulness causes us to worry and fret so much more about our bodies, our nutrition, our diet, our fitness, than about the well-being of our souls, as are the repercussions of sin. It leads us to think that we know the way to contentment and happiness and holiness better than God. Joan of Arc once said, I would rather die than do something which I know to be a sin or against God's will. But because of sinfulness, we say the opposite. We'd rather God die. That's the handiwork of sin. It's the mother of brokenness and foolishness and ignorance and moral depravity and idolatry, chiefly in the form of self-worship. And you can see by now that the remedy for sinfulness at least as it's biblically understood, cannot be reduced down to better education or more self-control or better laws or better social structures. That's way too simplistic. Christians don't think like that. We're not that simplistic. Now, over the centuries, Christians have debated how it is that we come to a sense of our sinfulness. Following what St. Paul says in Romans 7, Many have reminded that the law of God serves to expose our sin. The law shows us that we don't measure up, that we miss the mark. God's law, however, is not the only thing that sobers us up in terms of sinfulness. There's another bucket of water that hits us in the face, and it's the cross of Christ. Talking about Good Friday, the great reformer Martin Luther once said that Good Friday is a moment where it is more than appropriate to become terror-stricken in heart at the sight of your sinfulness. Good Friday gives us a moment to come to terms with the blunt fact that things are so bad in this world that someone had to die because of you and me. That's exactly what St. Peter says in Acts chapter 2. In other words, when we look at the cross... It's fitting to be terror-stricken, in a sense, to be spiritually disrupted, to have our consciences burdened. It makes sense. Things are much worse than we like to imagine. And while we're not as warped as we could be, we're not half as good as we think we are. Now, I wish I could stop here, and I bet you do, too. But I can't. Because Christ crucified tells us something even more ominous about the sinfulness that characterizes our existence. It tells us that sin blinds. It seals our eyes. It dupes us. It leads us to confuse good and evil. This aspect of sinfulness is most arrestingly and appallingly revealed in the fact that the one who came to model a life free from sin the one who came to save his people from their sinfulness, was, as a result of that very same sin, put on a cross. John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. When God visited his people, he found a cold welcome. His own the ones that he came to save, nailed him to a cross. And here's the thing that we need to realize today, dearly beloved. The Jews and the Romans that did that were servants of your sins and mine. So you and me, in a sense, are ones who had a hand in the crucifixion and torture of Christ, the one who came to rescue us. If we had been there at that moment 2,000 years ago, we would probably have participated. And if we didn't participate, we probably would have been passive. Both are culpable. Have you ever come to terms with this in your life? Good Friday's a good time to start. So sinfulness can be harrowing, can lead us to do ridiculous and ruinous things. Imagine being in the operating room for heart surgery, and you need that surgery or you'll die. The doctor is going to perform that operation pro bono. But instead of allowing him to work, you sit up, you smash and bend all of his instruments, you stick a scaffold into his heart. Idiocy, foolishness, and abomination, those are the calling cards of sinfulness. The cross happened because of sin and for our sinfulness. To see Christ crucified is to have that epiphany. It is, as the old hymn says, to weep and tremble. Contrary to popular slander and even compromised church practice, the Christian is not someone without sin. The Christian is someone who admits their sinfulness, and they do that when they look at the cross. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you were, you know that it happened because of the seriousness of sin. But the cross was also required because God's love is serious. God's love is very serious. Now, in characterizing the cross, Christians have often used a word called atonement. Some of you might know it. It refers to Christ's substitutionary death for us on the cross. Now, atonement seems to be a word that's out of vogue these days. Some people want to jettison it altogether, but that would be devastating, not just for theological reasons, but also for pastoral reasons. See, contrary to what you may think when you first look at the cross, at the center of atonement is love, deep, profound, and costly love. I'll get back to that in a moment. According to the Bible, the seriousness of sin means that an equally serious intervention is necessary. A rescue from God, salvation not from within this world but from outside of the world coming in. Romans 5 makes that abundantly clear. Sin is what separates us from God and God is life. So therefore sin is death. Sin means that we are decomposing as humans, spiritually, psychologically, physically, emotionally, relationally, and eternally unless someone intervenes on our behalf. Something beyond ourselves, a force and a grace, not in this world. We don't look inwards for salvation, we look upwards. Do you hear that? There are a lot of people in Vancouver who say the opposite. We don't look inwards for salvation, we look upwards. Because there's nothing in this world, nothing in us, that can help with this problem. The New Testament tells us that that type of intervention occurred. It culminated on a hill outside of Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon in the spring in AD 33. An astounding rescue, but a costly rescue. On the cross, Christ experienced all the signs of death, the death which is commensurate with our sinfulness. He experienced immense psychological and physical pain and suffering. He was stripped, he was shamed, a crown of thorns was placed on his head, he was cleaved with nails to a splintery cross, hanging, bleeding, asphyxiating. Yet all that affliction and all that scourge was a flea bite compared to the spiritual agony that he experienced being separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's the reality of hell, separation from God. That is the greatest torment that Christ endured on the cross. It was excruciating. And I choose that word carefully because the Latin base for that word means out of the cross, excruciating. All that grief and sorrow struck right to the heart of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know as well as I do that separation from people that we love hurts. The more intimate and the more cherished the relationship, the greater the pain of separation. People, there is no deeper, more intimate, more affectionate relationship in the universe than the relationship that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Imagine your most intimate, most cherished relationship, then multiply it times a million, raised to the millionth power. You're getting closer. Why would God do all of that? Why would God bear this? What would motivate God to do this? One word, love. Extravagant, reckless, exorbitant love and compassion. That's what true love looks like. It gives things up for the sake of the beloved, and it gives up the beloved for our sake. It's not the love of a Hallmark card or a Facebook like, or that type of love that says, do whatever makes you happy, even if it ruins you. It's not that type of love. What we often call love is actually sentimentalism or pragmatism, dressed up all nice and fancy to make it look a little bit more noble than it actually is. But the love of God, brothers and sisters, is utterly different, and it's manifest on the cross, a love that foregoes for the sake of the beloved, a love that is patient and kind, a love that rejoices in truth, a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things for your sake and mine. Now, when we perceive the seriousness of God's love and the cross of Christ, we begin to see why it is so ironically tragic that people want to minimize the cross, the atonement. They want to cut it out of the Christian understanding of salvation. And there are people right now, a lot of them out there, who are saying just that. They say the cross looks, makes God look like a monster, that he becomes ghastly and unkind, They say we shouldn't talk about substitutionary atonement when we preach the gospel, that Christ was there for us because it makes God seem less loving. But the opposite, in fact, is true. The opposite is true. What do you mean, pastor? I'll tell you. To remove the cross is to make God less loving, to pare down his love to sentimental, pathetic sentimentalism. Nothing but a pleasant thought, a good intention, a bit of well-wishing. Not something that will be inconvenienced for our sake. Something that will endure suffering and self-denial for the sake of the world. Without the cross, there is nothing that will spur awe and wonder and gratitude. Nothing that will make your heart race, nothing that will make you sing, nothing that will melt your heart. Nothing that could move you half as much as that poem, The Given Tree. Moment of honesty. Perhaps some of you struggle to recognize the form of love that's displayed in the cross. You've got some inner misgivings and resistance towards this. You won't be the first. It's to be expected because we live in a culture, I think, that has marinated us in ideas about love that are flimsy and cheap. Counterfeits we can become rather acclimated to all of this. And so we are unable to welcome and embrace true love when it looks us in the face. When it looks us in the face, looking down bloodied from the cross. If you struggle in this way, and I have, let me give you a bit of practical advice. Acknowledge and close the gaps. Acknowledge and close the gaps. Be consistent in the way that you estimate love. What are you talking about, Revel? Revel's going to tell you what he's talking about. <laughs> Here's the thing we all accept and cherish and even crave forms of love from other people that are quite similar, really, to the love displayed on the cross. Yet we reject the cross as unloving as cruel, and so there's a gap. We're being inconsistent. We want the love in our life to have a certain character, but if we reject the cross, we reject that character. You can't have it both ways. To reject the cross as unloving and cruel is to forego and denounce the type of love, the form of love that we all want to experience. Let me unpack this for you. I want you to think about moments and experiences where you have tasted and known authentic love, where someone demonstrated care and compassion for you over self-interest, where someone gave up something dear for your sake, real sacrifice, some occasion where someone changed their schedule or their lifestyle for your benefit. Maybe an exchange where you heard these words, I love you and I will take you as you are especially when the person saying them really knows you. Or maybe these words, yes, this relationship is hard, but I'm going to stick it out with you because you're worth it. A moment when someone freely decided to decrease that you might increase. That's the stuff of authentic love, not sentimentalism. Stuff that should move us, impact us, change us. All of this, brothers and sisters, is God's message to us through the cross. A message of love that we can't really absorb, but a gesture of love that will rock your world and alter your destiny for the better. I hunger for that type of love, you hunger for it. You may be daydreaming about it right now. If we are denied this type of love, our spirit sinks our mood sours, we can even go ballistic and hurt ourselves and other people. We're always scrambling around to find that authentic love, to procure a sense of it, even if we have to manipulate things to do that. We look for it everywhere, but so often we don't look up, up at the cross. And we should, because it is there and there alone that we will find the most profound and filling gift of that form of love that our hearts need as much as our lungs need air. So again, if you want to get get rid of the cross, then you got to be ready to deny yourself that form of love that we all crave in its most profound and satisfying expression. You can't have it both ways. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you were, you know that the cross was required because God's love is serious. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son.